Okay, it's time for us to get started. Um, tonight, we're going to be studying Mormonism. We're also going to study uh, Sunday morning. We'll have two, two lessons on Mormonism. And uh, hopefully, when we're done, you'll have the ability to... Well, you probably already know a good bit about Mormonism. So this will probably serve as a bit of a refresher. And you might learn some things that uh, they practice, some things that uh, in their history that's uh, actually common with ours that I think is rather interesting. Uh, okay, so just curiosity. How many of you have actually had an encounter with either a Mormon uh, missionary or uh, somebody you work with? You, just me, you have not? Okay, I was going to say, because it's... They're pretty, pretty uh, evangelistic. I would say, if you haven't had an interchange with one of these folks, uh, you're gone. Because they are, they're so evangelistic. And, and I admire the efforts that they go to. Brent, we could learn some things about that from their, uh, from their persistence, uh, from their uh, aggressive uh, evangelism. I had an encounter about six weeks ago, I guess, and they were aggressive. They are, and uh, they're they're pretty slick salesmen because, well, as we're going to learn tonight, and, and I don't say that in a negative way. They they prepare, they prepare uh, ahead of time. These these young men that you have that come knock on your door, they're not uh, they're not arbitrarily chosen to do that. They they do that with their own uh, with the resources of their own family. They're not supported by the LDS Church, so they've got a conviction there. They're given two years of their lives for this. They're going to go to a lot of different places. They're not going to spend most of their time in one place. They've been prepared by the LDS Church to present certain things to you to be prepared for what you're going to say to them. Uh, So working with them can be particularly frustrating because they are definitely in a push mode. They're, They're there to teach you, just like Jehovah's Witnesses would be there not very receptive of hearing anything. You're probably going to have more success with a Mormon if it's someone that you work with, someone who is not a mission, uh, missionary uh, evangelist. So <clears throat> they, uh, they have been very successful in their efforts. They have grown an awful lot. They're currently over 12 million members by their own counts. There's some debate about exactly how many there are and this too, uh, the growth rate. Uh, this growth rate is reflected uh, by the years 1995 to around 2000. The growth rate has slowed, so, slowed down some since then. Um, if they were to, to keep up that growth rate, they would have around 250 million adherents within 80 years. Uh, again, doesn't look like they're quite going at that rate. Uh, in ni- uh, around 2000, they had about $30 billion in assets as, a, as, a, uh, as an organization. And at that time, they have taken their annual income of about $6 billion a year because they're invested in not, not only are they having uh, people give money, tithes and uh, different types of offerings that they mandate, but they also have quite a few businesses uh, as well. So they would be well up in the Fortune 500 company if all those things were taken into account. They're generally well respected, uh, these young men. That come to your door. Uh, I work with a Mormon, uh, a good person, clean, morally upright, generally speaking. Uh, they're just like any denomination would be, uh, and hopefully to a much lesser extent, uh, Christians. They, there is a good bit of variability in the amount of faithfulness that you're going to. If you meet a Mormon, do not assume 
that they will know everything that we're going to talk about in this class. Don't assume that they believe it uh, vehemently. They will be aware of it, but the extent to which they uh, adhere to it is going to be different. So, as we've said before in this class, I, I repeat it, it's really good to ask questions. It's good to, to find out what does this individual believe. They're not, they're not homogenous to the extent that you can just look at one and you know them all or have the doctrine down and you've got their motivations well understood. Some of them, I, I feel like, are quite sincere. Others, uh, I would have to question that. And ironically, I would say that the further up you get in the hierarchy of the Mormon church, the less likely you are to find people who are genuine and sincere based on the writings uh, and the recent trends within their church, within their organization. The doctrine, as I say, is constantly changing. Uh, yet, even though, again, Mormon leaders have uh, taken a lot of flack for the different things that have been taught over the years, uh, because they have... Um, uh, Continuing revelation, at least in their own minds, they have these, these continuing revelations. That's a convenient way for them to change doctrine. And yet, uh, there is a structural uh, framework that they cling to that just pretty well any Mormon that you're going to meet, they're going to know this doctrine and they're going to believe it to one uh, to some extent. So we're going to try to focus on those things uh, predominantly and, and try to leave some of the fringe things uh, uncovered. Because we don't have that much time anyway. So that's what we're going to be studying uh, during the classes. Now, what I would like to do is kind of go over a brief history of Mormonism. Because even relatively new converts to Mormonism are going to be familiar with their, their history. They're going to be indoctrinated reasonably quickly with the history. They're proud of their history. Uh, it's been a troubled uh, couple of hundred years for them. 150, 160 years. And... Um, they kind of, uh, I won't say they adopt a it's us against the world kind of mentality, but they do relate to those, especially those early struggles that Mormons went through when they were ostracized, when they were treated, uh, really they were treated unfairly at times by groups of people in the upper Midwest in particular. Uh, and they dished out uh, quite a bit of that themselves too. So there's, uh, there's no innocence on both sides of that thing. But they relate back to that. They see their side of the history uh, as being very uh, compelling that they are in the right. The fact that they endured through a great deal of adversity uh, and endure to this day is to them a bit of an evidence to the fact that they are true. They do maintain that they are the true church. Uh, so we're going to go over the, the brief history of Mormonism. <clears throat> Central to Mormonism is the understanding of who God is, and who man is, who man may become. It's a little bit of foreshadowing. If you know anything about Mormonism, you probably have an idea where I'm going with that. But the God of Mormonism, do not mistake him to think that he is Jehovah, the God that we serve. You're going to see that he is quite different. Uh, we're going to hopefully answer the question of who is Jesus to the Mormons. Uh, we're going to take a quick look at what is Mormon scripture. What does it mean? And I think this may actually be the most compelling thing for Mormons is what does salvation mean to a, what does that mean to a Mormon? Uh, it's the most compelling aspect of Mormonism to somebody who truly understands it and buys into it. It is not like salvation as we understand it. Uh, just to give you this little bit of a, a tidbit, 
We're all saved. All of you are saved except me, by the way, in this room, because I've apostatized from Mormonism. I grew up uh, in a sect of Mormonism that is not the LDS church. Quite different. Very different. I want you to understand right now that the things that I'm going to tell you about LDS Mormonism, I never believed, didn't know anybody growing up who did believe them. Uh, the bulk of these, these uh, ideas about God <clears throat> and salvation. However, there was some pretty common ground on Scripture. Some differences, uh, but uh, the ideas of who God is, who Jesus is, uh, who, and how we are saved uh, in the sect that I grew up in uh, was remarkably close to what the truth is. In fact, it helped me a lot in understanding the truth when I, when I became exposed to it. <clears throat> so that's the thing we're going to try to do. And by the way, um, if I talk too fast, too loud, too quiet, or if I just you want to cover something, just stick your hand up because <laughs> I'm nervous. <laughs> All right, so... Joseph Smith was born the fourth child to uh, Lucy Mack and Joseph Smith in Vermont, Sherman, Vermont, in 1805. Now, one thing, the reason that's important to understand is Vermont, New England in, in general, uh, from the 1790s, early 1800s, was very unlike today. Today it's pretty spiritually dead up there, but at that point in time it was extremely spiritually active. You had a lot of evangelism going on. You had a lot of the, uh, the restoration movement uh, was occurring in that area. Uh, and as you'll see, the, the Mormon church grew out of that religious fervor that was so rife in that area at that time. Uh, in fact, this very next point in 1820, at age 14, um, Joseph claimed that while he was praying in the woods near his home, <clears throat> he saw a vision. And in this vision, in this vision, the account changed some over the years, but this is the basic details. Thick darkness enclosed him. Two personages appeared. They were Jesus and God the Father. And he learned from that vision that all the churches were in error. Now, why, why would he even claim this particular thing? He had, his family had been going to all these different meetings, and they had heard of the, the, the religious divisions and the fervor that was being debated about which way is right and how do we serve God and what is the church. They heard a lot of that teaching. And, and Joseph was likely confused by it, uh, but at any rate, he, in my opinion, and I hate to be, well, I'm, I'm sure of this, he concocted this story later on, not when he was 14. Because nobody knew about this for some years. All this was related much later. In 1823, again, according to Joseph, uh, originally the angel, angel Nephi, later he changed the story to the angel Moroni, uh, allegedly appeared to him, told him about these plates of gold that were written and uh, stored in a mountain, a mound, more correctly, near Palmyra, New York. And um, he was told that uh, if he would live faithfully and do things right, that he would have an opportunity to get those and to translate them. Uh, in 1827, he was granted that, according to him. Uh, he, he not only found the plates where they were buried with the guidance of the angel, but also <clears throat> uh, the Urim and Thummim, uh, which you might remember mentioned in the Old Testament. These were what... Uh, according to one account, he, would, he used to translate the Reformed Egyptian 
characters on, on the plates. If you're asking yourself, what is Reformed Egyptian, don't feel too bad because, by the way, there is no such thing. Okay. In 18, now this is really when things began to heat up. It was right around 1829, 1830. Uh, he claimed that, in, that he and uh, Oliver Caldry uh, re- received the Aaronic priesthood directly from John the Baptist, Baptist and then they baptized one another in the Susquehanna uh, River near Harmony, Pennsylvania. About a month later, they are said to have received from Peter, James, and John the Melchizedek priesthood. They still keep those two priesthoods till, to, till this day. The Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood. So they don't have to have one or the other. They've got them both and they've got them now. And in addition to apostles and such. Uh, in 1830, thanks to the generosity of a man uh, named Martin, they, um, they printed 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon. And on April the 6th of that year, they incorporated the church. Uh, this is a little bit of a misnomer. It was originally not the church of Jesus Christ. Any guesses as to what the original name was? The Church of Christ. In fact, there is a sect of Mormonism, a fairly small sect of Mormonism, that still goes by that name to this day. I'll explain a little bit about why that probably happened. But Here's the Doctrine and Covenants in the Pearl of Great Price. In uh, section 20, the revelation that they were to do this, uh, it was given on April the 6th, the rise of the Church of Christ in these last days. That was the name until 1834, I believe it was, when they changed it to the name, the name to the uh, the Church of Latter Day Saints. And then uh, in 38, they changed the name to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. Okay. Now, in 1830. I don't want to get bogged down in the history, but it is tremendously fascinating to me. And it does help you understand some of the some of the where the doctrine came from. First of all, there was a man by the name of Sidney Rigdon. And Sidney Rigdon was a contemporary, in fact, more than just contemporary, he was really close with Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. And because of that, he became very familiar with the truth. Uh, as it was understood. Now it was a very much a or a millennialist truth at that point in time. But the, the, the movement back to the New Testament church, he was well, well influenced by that. And he had been a Presbyterian preacher at one point in time, had had, prior to that, left the Presbyterian church and formed some various groups. And through one thing turning another, he ended up in Ohio. Well, in 1830, November, he was converted <coughs> by Joseph Smith. Alexander Campbell, it seems didn't want to have anything to do with any movement to establish a utopian society. But, but Sidney Rigdon did. Very intelligent man. Uh, fascinating study of him, himself. But at any rate, because of that, Smith was not really... And by the way, this has all been downplayed by both, uh, especially the LDS church. And, and, and by the way, this is useful to know because one of the things that they like to say is how could Joseph Smith, this unlearned... How could this unlearned farm boy, uh, how could he learn so many doctrinal things and be so, you know, so eloquent and whatnot? Well, the answer to that question is Sidney Rigdon, and to some extent later Orson Pratt. But Sidney Rigdon 
was very very intelligent and knew the knew the Bible pretty well, but he wanted to ha- have this utopian society, and so he uh, uh, Joseph he he, declared, he uh, convinced Joseph that that was a good idea, and of course that was a pretty easy sale, and they banned it. Now that's also an inflection point for the Mormon Church because before that it was just ragtag, just a handful of people. Well, Rigdon brought two thousand members just like that in Ohio, around Kirtland, Ohio. So immediately they gained a lot of steam because of that. Smith then moved to Kirtland, Ohio, and around those and those two thousand converts really came from Rigdon. Uh, they built the first Mormon temple there, and uh, it's at this point in time that Joseph claimed, and we won't get too deep into all of this uh, this logistical stuff, but Joseph Smith claimed that uh, Independence, Missouri, was going to be the new Jerusalem, the place where the kingdom would be reestablished. And as a result, a temple would need to be built there. They dedicated the temple site. Also interesting to know because to this day, first of all, um, Joseph declared that if that temple were not built within that generation, that that would be evidence that the, the Mormon church was not true. He didn't call it the Mormon church, but... That that temple was has not been built to this day on that site. There's your there's your prophecy that was unfulfilled. Okay. 1833. Uh, Joseph Smith. This is also not well known. Joseph Smith translated the Bible. The uh, well, we use the word translated pretty loosely there. I have a copy. I grew up with that particular version of the Bible. Um, the, the LDS do not use it. They use the King James Version. If you study with a, uh, an LDS Mormon, you use the King James Version if you can. Not even the New King James. They'll, they'll, they'll use it, but uh, they would prefer the, the King James Version. <clears throat> did, I, did I miss the point? The LDS, what that stands for? Latter-day Saints. Okay. That was the... Uh, the thing they picked up in 1834. Uh, in 1835, Joseph Smith, uh, or they published the Book of Commandments, and I've got a photocopy of this myself, uh, published as the Doctrine and Covenants. A lot of changes, heavily, heavily revised. I got, actually got the 1830 version and the 1835 version, and there are some really telling changes in there. Because what happened, Martin Harris uh, and those men, uh, Oliver Caldry, uh, even Sidney Rigdon, they had a vision that was pretty limited in terms of revelation. But Joseph Smith, once he had this title of prophet and seer, uh, not just translator, which is in the original uh, preface to the Book of Mormon, then he had free course to do whatever he wanted to. And that's what led to those later doctrines of polygamy. About 1835 is when polygamy began to be practiced privately, though very much publicly denied. It wasn't until about 1840. Uh, one or two. Martin Harris, one of the original three uh, uh, of the uh, witnesses to the, the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon, the man who fronted the money for its original publication, was excommunicated. Again, because of his standing in the way of Joseph Smith uh, wanting to get uh, more and more power and influence over the doctrine and over the people. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the thing was originally hatched to sell books, and I think it got out of control. That's kind of the way I... Maybe that's a little bit too cynical, but... Uh, at 1838, after a scouting trip to Missouri resulted in uh, Joseph Smith at Far West and places like that where they were they were basically driven out at gunpoint, they, they went to Nauvoo, Illinois, or they went to a, bought some land on the uh, Mississippi River in Illinois. They founded a city, city called Nauvoo, 
this city became uh, the center place for people from all over the world. Now, one thing that uh, Sidney Rigdon and Oliver Calder and Orson Pratt and those men knew to do is they sent people overseas to preach this doctrine about a book that had that was another testament of Jesus Christ that talked about where the American Indians came from. We should do this in about we should take about two months to do all this. <laughs> Sorry. Um, at any rate, so converts started showing up in the early 1840s because of that, about 1842 from England in particular. Uh, I'm sorry, 1840. Uh, the doctrine of baptism for the dead, you may have heard of that, was introduced. Uh, Smith then receives his revelation uh, on plural marriage. Uh, he received the revelation. He was already practicing it, but uh, Emma Smith, his wife, she didn't much like that too much. So basically the revelation was a rebuke of her... Uh, Unfaithfulness in this matter. So anyway, that's uh, that's when it came. In 1844, uh, the, also kind of an unusual uh, thing happened. Uh, Joseph Smith was nominated for president of the United States. Uh, about that time, there was a newspaper by people who had left the LDS uh, organization uh, who were opposed to the new things that Joseph Smith was innovating, and it was called the Nauvoo Expositor. And because of that. Uh, the, the the Mormons got together a couple hundred of them and they stormed the, the, this particular press, destroyed it, and uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Joseph Smith and his brother had, were jailed because of that. Uh, it is interesting, by the way, it's generally accepted that J- Joseph was able to shoot and kill when the mob at Carthage, Illinois, stormed the jail that he was able to shoot and kill two of the attackers with a smuggled smoke pistol. If you go to Salt Lake City and you go to the a museum they have there, something that will be very conspicuously absent is artifacts from the, from the Americas that confirm the Book of Mormon. There aren't any. But you can see that pistol. That pistol is there. So that's not a hearsay kind of thing. Uh, it was after Joseph's death uh, <clears throat> that Brigham Young and Sidney Rigdon struggled for the leadership, and you can see now why history kind of relegates Sidney Rigdon to unknown among LDS because he struggled for the leadership of the church. He refuted very immediately against plural marriage and many of the revelations of Joseph Smith. Young embraced it. And as a result, the hierarchy went with Young, and he was the one that led them to Utah. <clears throat> uh, 1847, most of them left Nauvoo, Illinois, uh, under heavy persecution in the dead of winter. Very, very, if you ever get to hear, they're, they're very proud of that part of their story. Those wagon trains west, they still reenact to this day. Very proud of that. 1851, The Pearl of Great Price was published. Um, and I've got a copy of that here. You can get those uh, pretty easily. Brigham Young was appointed by President Fillmore as the uh, governor of uh, Utah. The organized church, this is the reorganized church rather, this is the one that uh, uh, I came out of. This was set up in 1860 in Amboy, Illinois. The young Joseph Smith III, who had just been an early teenager when his father died, was now old enough and reluctantly agreed to become the president of this RLDS, and they kept uh, a direct lineage back to Joseph Smith until I was born. Until, in fact, when I grew up, it was a Smith in their office. They've since abandoned that and changed their name to the Community of Christ. Uh, Brigham Young University founded uh, Wood, Woodrow. I'm sorry, Wilford Wood was the president at this time. 
practicing uh, and later convicted for practicing polygamy, but uh, published a manifesto instructing Mormons not to do that. Uh, this just basically uh, catalogs their growth, reached a million members uh, in, in uh, 1947. Now this is really interesting because I didn't go into this in detail, can't, but uh, Joseph Smith purchased some mummies, four mummies and some papyri from a traveling Egyptologist or somebody who at least had them in his possession who passed near enough for him to find out about it. He took the papyri and uh, translated them into big sections of the book of uh, the Pearl of Great Price and uh, the book of Abraham. Uh, well, the book of Abraham and the book of Moses which are found in the Pearl of Great Price. But it <clears throat> uh, wasn't a long time after that that these papyri disappeared, uh, but they reappeared in, in 1967. Egyptologists translated and said they're a book of Egyptian burial breathings. They're not anything to do. In fact, there are only like uh, maybe two dozen characters on some of the stuff that he would translate pages and pages of stuff about. So that whole thing was quite an embarrassment to them, but they, they went through it. They did just fine. Revelation receiving black men of the, to serve in the preacher came in 1978. That uh, was a big reversal for them because they had previously held doctrinally that uh, blackness was a curse from God. Uh, LDS reported a membership of 5 million, 10 million, so you can see some exponential growth uh, in, in to what we see today. <clears throat> now, some of the questions, and this too is something that I, I have to admit from my early days as a Mormon. I, I left Mormonism before I became exposed to the truth at age 17, 18. Uh, because I began reading some of the later, some of the later uh, uh, things about their revelations that just didn't jive with what I knew about God. Uh, but at any rate, it was very appealing to me, and I think very appealing to them it, it is that they had answers, easy answers. Uh, you know, we we try to persuade people that it's necessary to be baptized by immersion. For the forgiveness of sin. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, their scriptures very often have it very, very, very explicitly written that way. In other words, if there's a problem with the doctrine, they just had a very explicit, uh, very legalistic writing about that. Uh, so, where did God come from? Uh, it came from the planet Kolob, if you wanted to know. <clears throat> How did Satan come to be? Well, this isn't completely unknown to you. He was one of, well, he's the second son of God, according to them. It feels bad to even say that. He, he, uh, jo, uh, Jesus was the first son of God and jo, uh, Lucifer was the second son of God. Uh, just really quickly, I'll tell you this story so you'll understand. Uh, Satan had hatched the plan. God basically had a, a, a committee here with some of his early sons and Satan was there and Jesus was there and Satan had uh, Lucifer had this great idea that to save man he would basically force him he would take away man's agency and so his punishment for coming up with that bad plan was that he became Satan he was cast out of heaven with one third of the uh, other children uh, how did the Americans get here um, American Indians by the way again very alluring Thing. The Book of Mormon answers that question very easily. They're, they're Jews. They came over uh, around 600 B.C. And, uh, and they populated the Americas, the land of Zarahemla and, uh, and whatnot. So you can see how hey, that's pretty... That's, 
and just a historical point, there's a book called View of the Hebrews by a man named Spalding who wrote that in the 1790s and speculated that the American Indians might be of Jewish descent. He wasn't alone. There was a good bit of that sort of speculation going on. So a lot of material for Joseph to base the Book of Mormon on. That was a pretty prevalent uh, uh, idea. Is there life elsewhere in the universe? Absolutely. Has to a lot of life elsewhere in the universe. Okay? Alright, that's the first set of slides. That took longer and I'm sorry. Any questions? Where's the golden plates at? Ah, good question. The, uh, the golden plates, by the way, were seen by uh, just a handful of people. And they say in their, uh, in their uh, official writings you know, that, that appear in the, for the preface to the Book of Mormon that we have hefted them, we have handled them. They use words like that. Well, later they were queried about that a little bit more. Well, we saw them through our spiritual eyes. So uh, they actually, the, those were taken back into heaven because Martin Harris's wife uh, took an original copy. The, Joseph Smith got a several hundred, hundred and so many pages into the transcript, and she says, "You know what? I'd like to see that." So she got it. She didn't like her husband spending all this money financing all this. She got it and took it to a professor Anton, and uh, Anton said, "This is Hogwarts." This, this, you know, she took some of the different things. And, um, at any rate, because. They never could get that manuscript back. They were afraid that whatever he would write of that section, that section just basically went away. That if he tried to reduplicate it, it would be it would be found to be not consistent with what had already been written. So that went away, and as a result, that the plates went away. All right. So this is their view of God. I think I've got that right. I I, I might look back at that just a little bit more to make sure I've got my facts straight. <coughs> <clears throat> um, the Mormon view of God is one of the more radical departures from the truth revealed in God's word. Most Mormons hold the following beliefs. He's not the only God. God has a physical body, flesh and blood. He was once a man, just like us, but he progressed to Godhood. And uh, by the way, therein lies a hint toward the Mormon concept of salvation. Not only did he do that, so can you do that. Only... Although I will, as a son of perdition, as someone who has rejected Mormonism, I will go to hell with Satan, according to them. You guys will all be saved. You will actually be saved in what's called the terrestrial kingdom of heaven. Pretty good. Second one from the top, or the first one down from the top. There are three levels. But, uh, <clears throat> but you don't have any hope of becoming a god. You have to be a true Mormon to do that. He did not create the universe from nothing, but rather from eternally existent matter. Okay. Now, I want to go ahead and just give you the, the uh, source for some of that. And this, this kind of thing can be multiplied ad nauseum and really can be multiplied a lot. If we should take a million worlds like this and number the particles, we should find that there are more gods than particles of matter in those worlds. That was Orson Pratt, one of the early apostles I mentioned. The truth is found in Isaiah 44. Now, by the way, what we're doing here is hopefully you can actually use this. I have used this before. Now, and I'm going to say something too here about uh, talking to a woman. I don't have any answers. 
as far as the absolute best way or some way that I can say that I've been really successful, I cannot say that. I have talked with them on many occasions, and I've never had much success. So I wish I could say that was different. But I have used this technique, and I've never had one actually answer uh, this scripture well at all. In fact, they seem, in every case that I've ever encountered, they seem very side, they seem, they seem to be very uh, blindsided by this particular passage. Okay, so the Mormon idea, many gods. Well, what does uh, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 say? Uh, read that for us, Mr. Uh, uh, Fields, if you would, please. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay. So that seems pretty conclusive, doesn't it? But they've got a really... Now, they do have an answer for that. Because there's a, that isn't the only passage that says, I'm Lord, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's pretty common in the Old Testament, isn't it? Well, guess what their answer is for that? Well, yeah, he is the only God that we have to do with. He's our God. But he's not the only God. You see, he's the only God of this particular sphere. He's the God of earth. Now, um, Trevor, would you read for us verse 8? Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Okay, here's what side blindsides them. That last little clause there. Now, they wouldn't hold that God has been eternally omniscient. But he's pretty close right now. And he was pretty close when this was written. Okay? Yes, sir. Is that particular passage in their book? Yes. Yes, it is. Well, they would for that, by the way, they would use... And in fact, I'm going to get to that. I'm going to show you something in the Book of Mormon. I'm kind of interested on that. Um, but yes, they would use the King James Version. And I was thinking about the, uh, the Joseph Smith translation. It's in there too, because I checked. It, from my experience, isn't it a common thing for them to claim mm-hmm. that the, the, the Bible, the true Bible, is corrupted? Yes. Sometimes I've studied it. Every time you hit it with a real verse like that, that's where we're going. And that's why this can, it can be, again, from a strategic standpoint, I'm not saying this is the best, but when I when I I've tried different techniques. Uh, the most recent technique that I've tried is if this guy comes knocking on my door, and I'm not saying this is right, but I'm going to knock some polish off of his cell if I can, and so I'll show you what what, what I do to do that. Uh, first of all, I know not one. If God does not know of another God, any at all, and if there are just part, of, you know, if there are just millions and millions of them. Isn't it kind of odd he wouldn't know about any other God? Well, and that's generally, you make an extremely good point. That's generally, and, and by the way, <clears throat> I, didn't, I didn't say this. Ask them if they believe that there is more than one God. When they come to you, and, and, and I say ask that humbly, let them explain it to you what they believe. If they are honest and if you ask the right questions, they will tell you they believe that they, they too are, that's why they're working. They're working to become a God. Just like this, and have their own planet with their own physical wife or husband, and to procreate another planet. <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Wouldn't he? Wouldn't okay? If he wasn't the only God before he made Earth, his planet or whatever, wouldn't he have seen the other gods? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the fallacy of that particular line of thought is just—it's it's irrefutable. But you make a good point. They're going to generally 
at that point in time, you get to the you get to the heart of it. They don't trust the Bible. In fact, in their thirteen articles of faith, they they state it this way: We believe that the Bible is the Word of God to the extent that it is correctly translated. Well, of course, that opens up all sorts of ways that you can throw away any passage. So that gives you, by the way, another pretty early glimpse of the difficulty of pinning down a woman because this no longer is trustworthy. So just like dealing with the humanists, you got you got some work cut out for you here. But in the Book of Mormon, you, you, you make a good point there, a pretty, pretty good point. This question comes up. <clears throat> There's a man named Zizron. He's a, not a good man. And another man named Amulek. He's a man of God. Now, by the way, you guys understand, I, I believe this is a fiction based on Spalding's book, okay? But this is what it says <clears throat> in Alma chapter 11:26. And Zizron said unto uh, uh, him, that is Amulek, Thou sayest, there is a true and living God. And Amulek say, Yea, there is a true and living God. Now Zephram said, Is there more than one God? And he answered, Now this is a man of God, Amulek is. And he answered, No. Now Zephram said unto him again, How knowest thou these things? And he said, An angel hath made them known unto me. Now when you do that, they will generally freak out. <laughs> uh, they will, and I say that, and, uh, Mr. Lambert was with me one time when, I, when we were at his house study, and the guy, they just stood up and they said, and they just like push a button, pre-program, this is what we do when we don't know what to do. And it, and, and it was, I believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God, and if you will read it and pray, I, excuse me, I read it I pr- and I prayed about it. And I don't believe that. It's not a bad idea to read it if you can keep yourself awake because it's a very boring book. Okay? <laughs> but if you can tell them that, that's not a bad thing. <clears throat> we surely didn't get very far, did we? He has a physical body. Uh, there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal who has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's and who is in fact a resurrected, glorified, perfected, and exalted man. That's a fairly recent apostle. Now look, this is from the Doctrine and Covenants. The the Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man. Well, we know from the Scriptures that is not so. We'll look at that really quickly here in a minute. Uh, God was once a man. It is the first principle of the Gospel to know for certainty. This is Joseph Smith. For certainty, the character of God, and to know that we may converse with Him as one man converses with another, and that He was once a man like us, yea, that God Himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on an earth, called the same as Jesus Christ Himself did. <clears throat> By the way, one of the uh, one of the ramifications of this particular doctrine is that you've had not just Jesus Christ is not unique. If God, if God, our God, Elohim, they call him, had to have a Savior for us, so will you. And there will have to be a sacrifice. And you see that there have been many Jesus. There have been many. The plan of salvation must repeat itself over and over and over again on each of these planets. You see that? How ridiculous that is? It becomes absurdity if you consider it. At any rate, now, what does Hosea 11 9 say? Uh, Eric, would you read Hosea 11 9? And um, 
Mr. Williams, if you would look up Malachi 3 6. I don't, I don't have any oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, you want to read it for us, Ms. Knudsen? Uh, Malachi 3 6. And um, I'll, uh, I'll look up Psalm 90, verse 2. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. Okay. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come up there. Okay. So he just states it very simply. He's not a man. Uh, right? He's not currently a man. What does Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 add to that? For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Okay, so that's a pretty big... In this idea of what they call eternal progression, uh, that's a pretty big obstacle, that passage. Because God, because what does that progression imply? There's lots and lots and lots and lots of change. This God has changed a whole lot. But this says He doesn't change. And if He doesn't change and He is not a man, He never was a man. So that's, that's false. Okay, uh, Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. How long has God been God? From everlasting to ever. He is eternally what He is. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13. Put that one down. So you can see how they've got some problems with the, with the Bible and why they would have to attack it. Um, God. Now, this is a, there are a lot of passages here. Maybe we'll look at this briefly uh, the, uh, Sunday morning. God, the supreme power, cannot conceivably originate matter. He can only organize matter. Neither can He destroy matter. He can only disorganize it. The doctrine that God made the earth and man from nothing becomes, therefore, an absurdity. By the way, these apostles are, as we would view an apostle, they are authoritative. So this is, this is to them as the Word of God. And as if that weren't enough, going back all the way to Joseph Smith, the pure principles of element which can never be destroyed, they may be organized and reorganized, but not destroyed. They have no beginning and can have no end. God, God, after he rose to a sufficiently high level, uh, got to move from Kalab, he was resurrected, and he became the God of earth. He inherited, he got this small uh, void and he worked his magic on it. We'll have to stop there, but I'll just show you a quick list of passages, and this is only a partial list, that refute that idea completely.